The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm very pleased to be joined by Lionel Shriver, The Spectator columnist and author. Uh, And we're going to be talking about America and mass shootings following the appalling shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Lionel, I felt a bit guilty asking you on to talk about this because I know you've become the sort of go-to person about mass shootings in America because you wrote a very significant novel, a very important novel. We need to talk about Kevin that was turned into a film. And you've written before about how awkward it is for you because every time there's a mass shooting in America, people ask you to come on and talk about it. But of course, in your book, The Killer, The Psychopath, was uh, using a bow, not a gun. And so you, you don't really feel well qualified to talk about the gun debate. Am I summing that up right? Well, maybe a better way of putting it is that I'm no better qualified to talk about the gun debate than anyone else. But you know columnists, they're experts on everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, Explaining stuff you don't um, understand. It is, it is true that after getting to the point of serious burnout on commenting about these incidents, I went through a long time of just refusing to participate. And that's partly because one of the observations that I continually made on these appearances is that it's our excessive attention to these, especially these school shootings, that helps encourage them. Because the shooter often wants to uh, publicize himself. I've observed, for example, that these shooters are often driven by a peculiar combination of grandiosity and low self-esteem because the grandiosity part is obvious. The low self-esteem means that in many cases they are willing to risk or even lose their lives in order to make a final splash on the way out. And that's not thinking very well of yourself. That's very extraordinary, isn't it? The idea that you would want to be famous so much that you don't care if you're dead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable. I think, you know, we've now had two killings within the last several years that entailed the massacre of very small children. And that is a unique subcategory. I think it's extra baffling. The whole thing is baffling, but it takes an extra twist of mind to want to kill little kids in quantity. I mean, it's, it's, I think it does, well, for example, I'm a novelist, so it's my job to imagine my way into the mind of such a person, and I have difficulty doing it because I just don't get, I don't understand directing your animosity at small children. There's no way these kids ever did anything to that 18-year-old boy. So what is it? And I'm more interested in this than the gun control debate. I mean, I, 
we well, can that, talk about that, and no, obviously that, that's okay. been the talking point. But it is more interesting to me what goes wrong in someone's head that they are driven to an act of such nihilism. It is profoundly anti-life. It's incredibly spiteful, but directing that spite at, at the last people you would think deserved it, it's almost designed to be the worst thing you could possibly do on purpose. But isn't that precisely it? I mean, I think we should talk about guns in a second, and we'll, we'll, we'll do that in a bit. But I think firstly, let's deal with the, the psychopathy here, which is the desire to do the worst possible thing you can do. And I think because these incidences are increasing, they are happening more and more. I mean, statistically, they are happening more and more in America. What is driving young men, generally men, I think 97% of mass shootings in America are done by men. What is driving young men to do the worst possible thing they can do? And I think, tell me if I'm barking up the wrong tree here, but I think it's probably the internet. It's the sharing of this sense that who can go sicker, who can go further, who can do the most disgusting thing you can do. And not caring is the point. Doing something so fundamentally inhuman is the point, is it not? I'm not sure I would blame the internet this time. You know, this was a phenomenon before the internet came along. You don't think it's facilitated it? The school shooting well predates any kind of mass exposure to to the internet. So, no, this is this is deeper and sicker than that. Now, obviously, the internet helps spread the phenomenon. But these incidents are given huge amounts of play in traditional media. So we don't need the Internet. There's definitely an, a sick element of competition. I think that there's a competition over body count. Do you believe that it's evil? Do you believe in the idea of evil? I think it's a, an apt word as a description of what happened. I don't think it's a very useful word as a description of people. Evil has an intrinsically unknowable quality, and it's a way of dehumanizing someone. So it removes any obligation to understand them, to to do that imaginative exercise that I was describing earlier, that they're, they're other than you. So the label just brings down a shade, right? It's just this behind door number three unknowable quantity of badness, and that's all there is to it. There are people that it's it's hard to use any other label, and I, and I think, yeah, and then you get to the point where you just throw up your hands and say, I don't understand this. I don't understand this person. I find it impossible to identify them with them. I find it difficult to imagine them as fully human because of what they did, and so I'm just going to lift from myself the requirement that I make that effort. And, you know, in this particular case, I, I can understand that. But, you know, the, the label evil doesn't get you anywhere. It does not advance in understanding. It doesn't help prevent them. Whether these things are preventable is another matter, but it certainly doesn't advance us toward anything. So it's, it's a fundamentally useless category. Well, I suppose it might be useless in terms of sort of branding someone evil and just dismissing it as that. But I suppose what evil might be is something that is in all of us. And you've written before about the fascination in these events. And we're all fascinated. Why are we so fascinated in them? 
if not for the fact that we are fascinated by the most depraved, the most disgusting thing people can people can do. So is the evil not just down to the individual, but the evil in all humanity? And that's why these events occur, because in the age of not necessarily social media, mass media, there is something interesting and fascinating in doing something so terrible, which is evil. Well, yeah, I mean, people do terrible things to each other. Look at Ukraine. Mm. And the people who do these terrible things usually have some some reason they tell themselves. Now, we know what Putin tells himself. He's denazifying Ukraine or what, you know, however he's explaining it to his people today. But I think that we are in some ways more focused on the individual instance rather than, you know, a whole army doing horrible things because it, you know, it personalizes it. So I've read what I could about the nature of the shooter. I think we're all curious. We might feel a little guilty about how curious we are, and I might tell you that your excessive interest in this person is one of the things that's going to make other people do it. But that doesn't change the fact that that it is oddly riveting. And therefore, you know, as I'm sure many other newspaper readers have done, I have combed the papers looking for some kind of explanation. And, you know, what what was this person telling themselves? What did he tell himself was the reason he was doing this? It's funny because there's a, a scene very near the end of We Need to Talk About Kevin. After the shooter, Kevin, or he's not a shooter, the killer, has gone through many different iterations to people who, are, who have been interviewing him as to why he did what he did. So he keeps coming up with different reasons. And then at the very end, and his mother asks him, why did he do it? And he says, I have no idea. And that's the point at which he has reached spiritual maturity, that he no longer understands himself. And that's where Eva, as the mother, accepts him. That's where she starts to love him, because he's accepted that he doesn't know why he's doing it. It's not because he's evil. Yes. He just he's not always thinking I want to do the most evil thing. He doesn't know why he's doing these horrific Yes, he has finally come to the point where he finds himself baffling and he looks back on, on what he did and it starts achieving the same unknowableness that I'm talking about. That unfathomable quality, even though he was the one who did it. So but I don't know what was driving this guy. I think we're all looking for meaning in these incidents. And uh, in some ways, that that is our mistake. In, in having written any number of pieces about school shootings, I finally came to the point of, of thinking, not only had I said all there was to say, but that constantly looking for some kind of lesson is a mistake. There isn't necessarily a lesson. In fact, that's one of the reasons that I, I get frustrated with the gun control argument because that is the impulse, yet again, to derive something productive and, and useful from these. And actually, there is nothing to take away. There is nothing good about this, and it, it doesn't teach us anything. I have read any number of pieces now of people trying to generalize about how we have a crisis among young men 
that there's a growing nihilism in the United States, and there may be something to that. But I know we see these, it seems as if these things are happening all the time. They aren't exactly. If you look at the, the huge population of the United States, they're still pretty rare. And to generalize about all the young men in the United States on the basis of these this handful of individuals in, in a given year is probably a mistake. It certainly does a disservice to young American men in general. I agree with that, but I, I do think, and we are going to have to get onto the gun stuff now, that I, I mean, I do think that it's indisputable that these incidences are occurring more regularly. They may be rare still, but the number of mass shootings, it's not necessarily a school shooting, but the number of people willing to do a mass shooting is increasing and I just wonder what, you know, you've said before, and you're right, that Brits, when we talk about America, we often say the gun thing is crazy. And I think it is crazy. And obviously there is some sort of debate to be had about assault weapons, assault weaponry, which America doesn't seem willing to have. Something I'm interested in is Joe Biden gives, a, by his standards, a very eloquent speech about gun control two nights ago. And I feel like we've just heard this play being acted out over and over again. And it's something Democrat politicians say, you know, we would fix this, but we can't because of the NRA or the gun lobby. But actually, I wonder whether they really want to fix it because it quite suits them to pose as the people who want to solve this problem. But they don't actually want to do it because... Because it wouldn't work. You know, I, I should clarify, I have been a supporter of more stringent requirements for gun purchases in the United States. But bar, barring just closing all the gun stores, withdrawing or, or at least reinterpreting the Second Amendment, removing all the guns, which there are now 400 million guns in the United States, and basically saying that, you know, unless you're in law enforcement or in the Army, you can't have one, I don't see this problem being solved. I mean, the one restriction that would have kept this incident from happening would have been raising the age limit to 21 instead of 18. But there are many, many other incidents that where that wouldn't have helped. Adam Lanza, who shot up Sandy Hook, got his mitts on his mother's weapons. She held them legally. They were routinely kept locked up. I think he figured out how to get them anyway. And that's the case in any number of these instances where, you know, the, the we-must-do-something impulse comes up with all these different measures they would like to institute, like universal background checks, which I would also support. Yet, in this particular instance after another, even if you had all those laws in place, they wouldn't have stopped this particular shooter. They wouldn't have. And so, for example, this latest shooter, he didn't have a criminal record. He, he didn't have any official record of having mental health problems, and he would have sailed through a background check. So I don't think this is easy to solve, and I know that the Democrats are constantly trying to use these horrific events as political fodder for their causes, and you know they've always regarded themselves as the more keen party on, on gun control. And this is something that, you know, basically they effectively like to blame the Republicans every time something like this happens, which isn't fair. 
there's a lot of talk about the gun lobby, but I don't think that's really accurate any longer either. The National Rifle Association has really been um, crippled and doesn't have nearly the funds that it used to. It doesn't really pour that much money into Congress anymore. Though I think more broadly Republicans are reading their constituency and it's their constituents who don't want stricter gun legislation. And I think the calculation is that this is an issue that is close enough to the hearts of the core Republican voter that you would lose more than you gained by joining the Democrats and passing some federal laws along the lines as we're discussing now. But I am just not that optimistic that the measures that are being discussed would would bring this phenomenon to an end. I hear that point, but I suppose what a lot of non-Americans don't understand is what is the actual point of the Second Amendment? What What is it about? It's about militias. Is that right? Well, there are two different interpretations of the Second Amendment, and I'm sure you're familiar with both of them. And there are some constitutional scholars who believe that it was merely encouraging people to be able to defend themselves in the form of militias before police and an organized army were widespread, and so they were just supposed to be able to provide for their own defense. And then there's the other interpretation, which is that it is your right to be able to defend yourself as an individual and to acquire the means of of defending yourself and your family. And I'm not a constitutional scholar, and I don't really have a position on that. I think it would be a big transformation of of the American political landscape for for us to go back to that earlier interpretation of the Second Amendment. I mean, in other words, good luck with that. <laughs> I suppose it's something that's been pointed out quite a bit over the last couple of days, uh, and actually since Buffalo, is that um, gun ownership has increased quite dramatically in the last few years. And people are putting that down to a couple of things. One is COVID, that when individuals feel the state is infringing on their liberties so much, they start to feel the need to kind of arm up, to tool up against the state. And the other one is Black Lives Matter and the riots that happened and seemingly a sort of sense of lawlessness kicked in and a lot of Americans felt their properties weren't safe because the political class were encouraging these riots the burning down of cities, and that they they wanted to arm up, which I, I think is, is sort of rational, and I think Brits can be very sneery about this, but I think unless you've lived in Kenosha or something like that, you don't really know how it felt. I think there is an overall sense of lawlessness that is growing in the United States, and that is not just a subjective impression. It's reflected in the statistics. And it's not just the murder rate that's gone up, but but theft, you know, shoplifting is rife. Uh, you've got blue states and blue localities that are basically turning what used to be crimes into misfortunes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you're familiar with that broken windows theory of policing. Yes. Um, yes. I think that we're looking at that, that on a national scale so that when you start letting people off the hook for more minor offenses, criminality starts increasing across the board. And then furthermore, you know, this sensation of everything being out of control 
is fed by what's going on at the southern border, where, you know, literally millions of people are pouring into the United States. You know, we don't know who they are. Some of them, I wouldn't denigrate them broadly, but certainly some of them are drug runners, bringing huge amounts of fentanyl and meth into the U.S. At the same time, we've got this huge drug addiction problem, and what was it, 100,000 people died of drug overdoses last year in the U.S.? And all this, it's a feeling. It's a collective feeling of the center not holding. And then you pile COVID on top of that, and you pour Black Lives Matter on top of that, so that you've got a lot of rhetoric in our institutions talking about what a horrible place the United States is, and it's institutionally racist, and you're horrible because you're white and you were you were born bigoted and you're probably going to die bigoted and and we can't wait for you to go away so that the entire country is made of a, up of non-white minorities i mean it's the feeling in the united states is of decay you know of of things starting to fall apart especially if you are in particular places and the, some of these phenomena are or up in your face, then it feels very personal and and immediate. So I don't know how much this whole kind of feeling is an, an ingredient in these mass shootings, but it's almost like a feedback loop because my sense of these young men is that they are in a state of despair. They wouldn't have put their emotion to themselves quite like that. I think they're experiencing rage, rage, resentment, Hatred, you know, broad-based hatred, not necessarily racial hatred, but just misanthropy. But the other side of that misanthropy is self-hatred. Anger is a defensive emotion. It's taking dark emotions and projecting them outwards and, and externalizing them. And it's a way of closing down from other emotions. What's underneath it is is depression and a sense of having no self-worth and disappointment and a feeling that there is no future for you, a bleakness. That's what's behind this. These people are throwing their lives away. Yeah, because sometimes it's racial, sometimes it's misogynistic. You know, incel, the incel culture was behind some shootings. I suppose it is a, a sense of deep rage and resentment that manifests itself on one particular thing. It could be racial, it could be women, it could be something else. I think when we talk about these things, we we end up talking about gun control, but actually you're talking about something bigger. People say it's not smaller, it's bigger, isn't it? It's a bigger problem than just gun control. I think one of the things that has started to become super creepy (laughs) about these incidents is if they're not creepy enough already is that the political reaction, everyone is watching what group is the shooter in and what group are the victims in, right? What's their ethnicity? What's their race? We generally know what gender they're going to be or, you know, they're going to be young men. Occasionally they're a little older. That's about the only thing that varies. But this time, for example, the shooter is Hispanic and as far as I could tell, all the victims were Hispanic. As far as I can tell, the entire town is Hispanic. And that doesn't, that's inconvenient for the Democrats because they've been selling this notion that the, what, what's really the big problem in the United States right now 
is white supremacy. And it's such a terrible problem that the FBI is going to make this their number one priority. When the FBI talks about domestic terrorism now, they're no longer talking about Islamist culprits, but purely white people who are bigoted and are conspiracy theorists and have to be stopped. This is a very democratic conceit. And by the way, I have never seen any reliable data that back the view that this is indeed the case, that white supremacist violence is going through the roof in the United States. It's taken as a given on the democratic side, but I have not seen any research that really backs this up. So, of course, you know, the Buffalo incident was perfect for them. And this seemed to validate this larger view that the biggest problem the United States has in terms of domestic violence is white supremacists on the rampage. This latest one doesn't fit in the box. So that's why we're talking about gun control instead. Do you think that's what happens? Does the conversation move on to gun control when the, the racial discussion doesn't work? Is that what happens? That's right. Oh, yes. Because I looked up the stats. I mean, there's, in 2021, there were 636 mass shootings. That means a shooting of, I think it's four or more in America. And these are not necessarily fatal shootings. But this means someone going on a gun rampage. And if you do it by race, 74% of the shooters were black. And that statistic isn't talked about. And no, it's not convenient. Should, it's not convenient, but also, why should it be? It's, I mean, the problem is deeper than race, right? It's far so, deeper than mm-hmm. race, but most of the gun violence is, we should clarify, black people shooting other black people, right? So it's an intra-racial problem. And the other, the other thing that we shouldn't forget to mention is that the people who are most victimized by gun violence or suicides. Almost two-thirds of the people killed by guns in the United States were people killing themselves. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about bringing in a waiting period, that's another gun control proposition. I think that one is probably important because a lot of suicide is impulsive. It's not going, you know, a waiting period of a week or 10 days or something like that, or even a month with many of these mass shooters who have been plotting for months or sometimes even years, fantasizing about about what they're going to do and, you know, then they'll be sorry. A waiting period is not going to discourage those people, but it certainly might save some people's lives who have hit bottom and are ready to do away with themselves and maybe give them a week and they'll reconsider. And most of the people who are shooting themselves are white. Yes. Do you think that's where Europeans and Americans just don't understand each other? Because America is essentially, at its core, a huge experiment in liberty and a huge experiment in freedom. And I don't think maybe perhaps Europeans understand the extent to which Americans are committed to freedom. And therefore, the right to bear a gun is part of the American experiment with freedom. And so we think they're crazy, they don't understand what they're doing, but we don't quite understand how committed Americans are to the idea of liberty. Yes, I, I understand European bafflement on gun policy in the United States, and I get a little tired of smug disapproval and, you know, you animals, <laughs> what's wrong with you? In some ways you deserve this because 
this is so irrational, and why do you still think you're in the Wild West? It is hard to understand, but I think you're right, and it's particularly for a, a sector of the United States, because, you know, there's, there's a goodly portion of the United States that also finds this baffling and would just not sell people guns, period. Again, using my imagination, I, I guess if, if I didn't have faith in the police or there weren't very many police around where I lived, if I were in a rural situation, let's say I lived near the border, the, the southern border, and my property was constantly overrun with, I didn't know who, I might want a gun. you know. So there are circumstances where you can see wanting a gun because you need to be able to protect yourself. It's funny because uh, in my novel... Um, the Mandibles, which is about the United States falling apart if economically, but then, of course, when you fall apart economically, you fall apart in terms of domestic order as well. So, you know, my 16-year-old hero, eventually, in order to rescue his family, gets a gun. Now, as the author, I didn't especially want him to get a gun because... I don't want guns to be the answer, and I do believe in restrictive gun policies, but I didn't know what else a sane person would do when the streets of New York had degenerated to lawlessness and people were were stealing from each other and killing each other, and, and how else are you going to keep from being a victim? So there are plenty of people who we could say don't, don't have circumstances like that, the kind of thing that I'm describing, and maybe maybe it is puzzling why they feel they need a gun, but it's a cultural thing. Now, it's not my culture. I grew up in a liberal democratic household. That's not my culture. But everyone isn't like me and my family, and there are plenty of people who feel that a gun is the ultimate self-empowerment, and they are not going to count on officialdom to protect them. And there's good reason not to completely trust the police or other authorities to protect you when you're really at the pointy end. Well, there are, if you look at something like COVID, that very much taps into the American sense that if the state has too much power it will become overbearing and it will start to infringe on your basic human liberties and therefore the appeal of a gun is more attractive isn't it because it's your way of saying you don't get to tell me exactly how I can live my life I have rights that are beyond you as the state and I think Europeans don't feel that in the way that Americans feel it or perhaps yes and you know that conventionally the state has a monopoly on violence that's the That's what gives the state its ultimate power. Americans are more traditionally mistrustful of the state and of authority in general than Europeans are. Europeans are much more prone to regard the state as a resort, as their protector, and in fact they have too much faith in the state. They tend to believe the government can solve all their problems, and it can't. In fact, when you give over to government the power to solve all your problems, then you don't have any power right? That's actually a kind of tyranny. It's a voluntary tyranny, but you're no longer exercising agency. The only, the only entity exercising agency is the government, 
because you're not solving any of your own problems. And that's one of the things I think that went wrong with COVID. We made it the state's problem. In fact, we made it the state's problem in the United States. And, there, and you got a big pushback, especially in Republican areas, against COVID regulations in a way that you didn't see very much in, in Europe. I found it something of a relief that at least some Americans said, what do you mean I can't leave my house? You know, and a different way of dealing with a non-state way of dealing with COVID would have been to say, here's our advice. This is what the disease is. These are the people who are most in danger of a very bad reaction or even death. So we think that you're sensible people and you will act in your own self-interest to protect yourselves to the degree that you deem necessary. And places that did that have had no worse COVID stats than the ones that enforced draconian legislation. But I liked the fact that there was a constituency in the United States that was not just going to roll over and say, oh, well, we have to wear a mask outside all the time, or we can't visit anybody, or we can't see more than one person six feet apart outside. At least somebody questioned authority in this case. So I think that's the good side of the United States. Well, so do I. But do you think that is the great attraction of the United States, even for people that sneer at it and think, you know, Americans are God and gun crazy and all that? I think also it's very attractive to non-Americans, this idea that, you know, you you can do what you want, and if the government tries to impose on it, you can actually get a gun and tell them to get lost and be all American about it. I think it's an attractive idea to to Europeans. It's part of an ethos of self-reliance. And by the way, that, that ethos has eroded considerably. There's still a, a lot of state dependency in the United States. But yes, the gun thing is partly, well, you're not, you're not going to be depending on some other authority if somebody breaks into your house. You know, you are going to defend your territory yourself. But when you talk about self-reliance, obviously that's very tied into the, the Puritan ethic. And, I mean, do you think what's maybe going wrong and perhaps why we're having all these mass shootings now is that you have the individualistic ethic in America without the Puritan self-restraint? And so you have this, I can do what I want. You have kids thinking, I have the right to have a gun, but they have less of a sense of self-restraint. Well, to be overbroad... We're certainly, we're developing a a culture of pathological self-pity. You know, this whole therapeutic culture. We're all mentally ill. Everybody has a problem. Or or as people increasingly say, we have mental health. (laughs) I love that expression, I have mental health. And that's all part of this victim ethos as well. You know, you have to be oppressed in order to get any respect. It's this weird inversion. And it is perfectly the opposite of what traditional American culture has elevated. You know, again, the, the self-reliance, the, the individualism, the, the whole thing of wanting to be a self-made man, you know, that never hear that expression anymore. And rather than get kids to toughen up, you know, ready for adulthood, they are much more likely to be coddled, to be anything but ready for adulthood, to stay at home until they're 45. <laughs> it's, it's not a culture that celebrates strength anymore. 
It celebrates weakness, and we are motivating people to feel sorry for themselves. There's no question that these shooters feel deeply sorry for themselves. And that's one of the things. I did a lot of reading about school shootings, and I emphasized before the Internet, and there were lots of them before Columbine. And what came across overwhelmingly in the texts that they would leave behind or even what they said when they, in the instances that they survived is how deeply they felt sorry for themselves. So you think self-pity is the driver of terrible psychotic crime? A lot of it. Yeah. Let's say you hadn't written a novel before and you were decided you wanted to write a novel now. Do you think you could come up with, we need to talk about Kevin now? Or has, has the world changed since you wrote it? You know, oddly enough, when I wrote the book, I was a little worried. I mean, this sounds bad. <laughs> I was a little worried that the school shooting phenomenon would peter out and my book would seem irrelevant. Little did you know. that. Uh... <laughs> little did I know. And, in fact, once the book was published, I said, hopefully, eventually the, the phenomenon would disappear because it would become passé. Like, it would become trite to the point where we weren't giving them as much attention anymore and therefore they wouldn't succeed in elevation through infamy and then maybe it would just go away. And I was totally wrong and it's got worse. I wish I had been right. I wish I had been right. About the only thing that's changed, in other words, yes, I could write Kevin today, the only thing that's changed is the body counts have gone up enough that it, if I were writing Kevin today, seven kids and a cafeteria worker and a teacher would not be devastating enough. And so I would have to design a much more spectacular climactic scene. That is an extremely bleak note. Let's try and end it on something something a little less bleak. I think, do you not think that perhaps the infamy is fading a bit? I mean, for instance, yes, we still research the details of the killer very quickly, but they are not such immediate, it's a horrible word to use, but superstars. You know, they, they were sort of media superstars. You know, everybody remembers Anders Breivik, Brandon Tarrant, all that stuff. Perhaps these things are happening so much that it is becoming trite in a way, and it is losing its celebrity appeal for these psychotic young men. I would like to be able to agree with you, but I, I can't. I think one of the reasons that we're not seeing a, a whole lot of analysis of this young man in Texas is there's just not much to go on. You know, they obviously have, like, one picture of him. There's only one picture, so you're just going to keep seeing that one picture in which he looks a little weird. And they don't have much of anything written down. I haven't seen any manifestos, or we'd be poring over it. So it really depends on how much, how much is left behind to be exploited and analyzed and, and publicized. And in this case, it just doesn't seem to be much. I mean, they found a couple of kids who said, you know, he could be aggressive. And we've, yeah. you know, as usual glommed on to this notion that, oh, he had a speech impediment as a child, so he must have been bullied. That's an old trope. But there's just not that much known about this guy. So we're going to move on because we don't have enough material. Yeah. <laughs>
Lionel, I think we must end it there, but thank you very much for coming on, and I do hope we'll get you on again, hopefully on a less terrible subject. Yes, please. <laughs> Something different. Okay. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. Thank you.